0: Section twenty eight of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume One by Edmund Burke. Section twenty eight. On the cause of the present discontents, part one. Hoc vero occultum intestinum domesticum malum, non modo non existit, verum etiam opprimit, antiquam perspicere atque explore potuaris. 1770. It is an undertaking of some degree of delicacy to examine into the cause of public disorders. If a man happens not to succeed in such an inquiry, he will be thought weak and visionary. If he touches the true grievance, there is a danger that he may come near to persons of weight and consequence, who will rather be exasperated at the discovery of their errors than thankful for the occasion of correcting them. If he should be obliged to blame the favourites of the people, he will be considered as the tool of power. If he censures those in power, he will be looked on as an instrument of faction. But in all exertions of duty, something is to be hazarded. In cases of tumult and disorder, our law has invested every man, in some sort, with the authority of a magistrate. When the affairs of the nation are distracted, private people are, by the spirit of the law, justified in stepping a little out of their ordinary sphere. They enjoy a privilege of somewhat more dignity and effect than that of idle lamentation over the calamities of their country. They may look into them narrowly, they may reason upon them liberally, and if they should be so fortunate as to discover the true source of the mischief, and to suggest any probable method of removing it, though they may displease the rulers for the day, they are certainly of service in the cause of government. Government is deeply interested in everything which, even through the medium of some temporary uneasiness, may tend finally to compose the minds of the subject, and to conciliate their affections. I have nothing to do here with the abstract value of the voice of the people, but as long as reputation, the most precious possession of every individual, and as long as opinion, the great support of the state, depend entirely upon that voice, it can never be considered as a thing of little consequence, either to individuals or to governments. Nations are not primarily ruled by laws, less by violence. Whatever original energy may be supposed either in force or regulation, The operation of both is, in truth, merely instrumental. Nations are governed by the same methods and on the same principles by which an individual without authority is often able to govern those who are his equals or his superiors by a knowledge of their temper and by a judicious management of it. I mean, when public affairs are steadily and quietly conducted, not when government is nothing but a continued scuffle between the magistrate and the multitude, in which sometimes the one and sometimes the other is uppermost, in which they alternately yield and prevail in a series of contemptible victories and scandalous submissions. The temper of the people amongst whom he presides ought therefore to be the first study of a statesman, and the knowledge of this temper it is by no means impossible for him to attain, if he has not an interest in being ignorant of what it is his duty to learn. To complain of the age we live in, to murmur at the present possessors of power, to lament the past, to conceive extravagant hopes of the future, are the common dispositions of the greatest part of mankind, indeed the necessary effects of the ignorance and levity of the vulgar. Such complaints and humours have existed in all times, yet, as all times have not been alike, true political sagacity manifests itself in distinguishing that complaint which only characterises the general infirmity of human nature from those which are symptoms of the particular distemperature of our own air and season. Nobody, I believe, will consider it merely as the language of spleen or disappointment. If I say that there is something particularly alarming in the present conjuncture, there is hardly a man in or out of power who holds any other language. That government is at once dreaded and contemned, that the laws are despoiled of all their respected and salutary terrors, that their inaction is a subject of ridicule and their exertion of abhorrence, that rank and office and title and all the solemn plausibilities of the world, have lost their reverence and effect, that our foreign policies are as much deranged as our domestic economy, that our dependencies are slackened in their affection, and loosened from their obedience, that we know neither how to yield nor how to enforce, that hardly anything above or below, abroad or at home, is sound and entire, but that disconnection and confusion in offices in parties in families in parliament in the nation prevail beyond the disorders of any former time these are facts universally admitted and lamented this state of things is the more extraordinary because the great parties which formerly divided and agitated the kingdom are known to be in a manner entirely dissolved No great external calamity has visited the nation. No pestilence or famine. We do not labour at present under any scheme of taxation, new or oppressive, in the quantity or in the mode. Nor are we engaged in unsuccessful war, in which our misfortunes might easily pervert our judgment, and our minds sore from the loss of national glory might feel every blow of fortune as a crime in government. It is impossible that the cause of this strange distemper should not sometimes become a subject of discourse. It is a compliment due, and which I willingly pay, to those who administer our affairs, to take notice in the first place of their speculation. Our ministers are of opinion that the increase of our trade and manufactures that our growth by colonisation and by conquest have concurred to accumulate immense wealth in the hands of some individuals and this again being dispersed among the people has rendered them universally proud ferocious and ungovernable that the insolence of some from their enormous wealth and the boldness of others from a guilty poverty have rendered them capable of the most atrocious attempts so that they have trampled upon all subordination and violently borne down the unarmed laws of a free government. Barriers too feeble against the fury of a populace so fierce and licentious as ours. They contend that no adequate provocation has been given for so spreading a discontent, our affairs having been conducted throughout with remarkable temper and consummate wisdom the wicked industry of some libellers joined to the intrigues of a few disappointed politicians have in their opinion been able to produce this unnatural ferment in the nation nothing indeed can be more unnatural than the present convulsions of this country if the above account be a true one i confess i shall assent to it with great reluctance and only on the compulsion of the clearest and firmest proofs, because their account resolves itself into this short but discouraging proposition, that we have a very good ministry, but that we are a very bad people, that we do set ourselves to bite the hand that feeds us, that, with a malignant insanity, we oppose the measures and ungratefully vilify the persons, of those whose sole object is our own peace and prosperity, if a few puny libellers acting under a knot of factious politicians without virtue parts or character, such they are constantly represented by these gentlemen, are sufficient to excite this disturbance. Very perverse must be the disposition of that people, amongst whom such a disturbance can be excited by such means. It is besides no small aggravation of the public misfortune, that the disease on this hypothesis appears to be without remedy. If the wealth of the nation be the cause of its turbulence, I imagine it is not proposed to introduce poverty, as a constable to keep the peace. If our dominions abroad are the roots which feed all this rank luxurians of sedition, it is not intended to cut them off in order to famish the fruit. If our liberty has enfeebled the executive power, there is no design. I hope to call in the aid of despotism, to fill up the deficiencies of law. Whatever may be intended, these things are not yet professed. We seem, therefore, to be driven to an absolute despair, for we have no other materials to work upon but those out of which God has been pleased to form the inhabitants of this island. If these be radically and essentially vicious, All that can be said is that those men are very unhappy, to whose fortune or duty it falls to administer the affairs of this untoward people. I hear it indeed sometimes asserted that a steady perseverance in the present measures, and a rigorous punishment of those who oppose them, will in course of our time infallibly put an end to these disorders. But this, in my opinion, is said without much observation of our present disposition, and without any knowledge at all, of the general nature of mankind. If the matter of which this nation is composed be so very fermentable as these gentlemen describe it, leaven never will be wanting to work it up, as long as discontent, revenge and ambition have existence in the world. Particular punishments are the cure for accidental distempers in the state. They inflame rather than allay those heats which arise from the settled mismanagement of the government or from a natural indisposition in the people. It is of the utmost moment not to make mistakes in the use of strong measures and firmness is then only a virtue when it accompanies the most perfect wisdom. In truth... Inconstancy is a sort of natural corrective of folly and ignorance. I am not one of those who think that the people are never in the wrong. They have been so, frequently and outrageously, both in our countries and in this. But I do say that in all disputes between them and their rulers, the presumption is at least upon a par in favour of the people. Experience may perhaps justify me in going further. When popular discontents have been very prevalent, it may well be affirmed and supported that there has been generally something found amiss in the constitution or in the conduct of government. The people have no interest in disorder. When they do wrong, it is their error and not their crime. But with the governing part of the state, it is for otherwise. They certainly may act ill by design, as well as by mistake. Les révolutions qui arrivent dans les grands etats ne sont pas un effet de hazard, ni de caprice des peuples. Rien ne révolte les grandes d'un comme un gouvernement foible et dérange. Pour la populace, ce n'est jamais par envie d'attaquer qu'elle se soulevait. May par impatience de souffrir. These are the words of a great man, of a minister of state, and a zealous asserter of monarchy. They are applied to the system of favoritism, which was adopted by Henry the of France, and to the dreadful consequences it produced. What he says of revolutions is equally true of all great disturbances. If this presumption in favor of the subjects against the trustees of power be not the more probable. I am sure it is the more comfortable speculation because it is more easy to change an administration than to reform a people. Upon a supposition, therefore, that in the opening of the cause the presumptions stand equally balanced between the parties, there seems sufficient ground to entitle any person to a fair hearing who attempt some other scheme beside that easy one, which is fashionable in some fashionable companies, to account for the present discontents. It is not to be argued that we endure no grievance, because our grievances are not of the same sort with those under which we laboured formerly, not precisely those which we bore from the Tudors or vindicated on the Stuarts. A great change has taken place in the affairs of this country, for in the silent lapse of events, as material alterations have been insensibly brought about in the policy and character of governments and nations, as those which have been marked by the tumult of public revolutions, it is very rare indeed for men to be wrong in their feelings concerning public misconduct, as rare to be right in their speculation upon the cause of it. I have constantly observed that the generality of people are fifty years, at least, behind hand in their politics. There are but very few who are capable of comparing and digesting what passes before their eyes at different times and occasions, so as to form the whole into a distinct system. But in books everything is settled for them, without the exertion of any considerable diligence or sagacity for which reason men are wise with but little reflection, and good with little self-denial, in the business of all times except their own. We are very uncorrupt and tolerably enlightened judges of the transactions of past ages, where no passions deceive, and where the whole train of circumstances, from the trifling cause to the tragical event, is set in an orderly series before us. Few are the partisans of departed tyranny, and to be a Whig on the business of a hundred years ago is very consistent with every advantage of present civility. This retrospective wisdom and historical patriotism are things of wonderful convenience, and serve admirably to reconcile the old quarrel between speculation and practice. Many a stern Republican, after gorging himself with a full feast of admiration, of the Grecian Commonwealth, and of our true Saxon constitution, and discharging all the splendid bile of his virtuous indignation on King John and King James, sits down perfectly satisfied to the coarsest work and homeliest job of the day he lives in. I believe there was no professed admirer of Henry VIII among the instruments of the last King James, nor in the court of Henry VIII, was there, I dare say, to be found a single advocate for the favourites of Richard II. No complacence to our court or to our age can make me believe nature to be so changed, but that public liberty will be among us, as among our ancestors, obnoxious to some person or other, and that opportunities will be furnished for attempting at least some alteration to the prejudice of our constitution. These attempts will naturally vary in their mode according to times and circumstances. For ambition, though it has ever the same general views, has not at all times the same means, nor the same particular objects. A great deal of the furniture of ancient tyranny is worn to rags. The rest is entirely out of fashion. Besides, there are few statesmen so very clumsy and awkward in their business as to fall into the identical snare which has proved fatal to their predecessors. When an arbitrary imposition is attempted upon the subject, undoubtedly it will not bear on its forehead the name of shit-money. There is no danger that an extension of the forest laws should be the chosen mode of oppression in this age, and when we hear any instance of ministerial rapacity to the prejudice of the rights of private life, It will certainly not be the exaction of 200 pullets from a woman of fashion for leave to lie with her own husband. Every age has its own manners and its politics dependent upon them and the same attempts will not be made against a constitution fully formed and matured that were used to destroy it in the cradle or to resist its growth during its infancy. Against the being of Parliament, I am satisfied no designs have ever been entertained since the Revolution. Everyone must perceive that it is strongly the interest of the Court to have some second cause interposed between the Ministers and the people. The gentlemen of the House of Commons have an interest equally strong in sustaining the part of that intermediate cause. However, they may hire out the usufruct of their voices. They never will part with the fee and inheritance. Accordingly, those who have been of the most known devotion to the will and pleasure of a court have at the same time been most forward in asserting a high authority in the House of Commons. When they knew who were to use that authority and how it was to be employed, they thought it never could be carried too far. It must be always the wish of an unconstitutional statesman that a House of Commons, who were entirely dependent upon him, should have every right of the people entirely dependent upon their pleasure. It was soon discovered that the forms of a free and the ends of an arbitrary government were things not altogether incompatible. The power of the crown, almost dead and rotten, as prerogative, has grown up anew. With much more strength and far less odium under the name of influence, an influence which operated without noise and without violence, an influence which converted the very antagonist into the instrument of power, which contained in itself a perpetual principle of growth and renovation, and which the distresses and the prosperity of the country equally tended to augment.' was an admirable substitute for a prerogative that, being only the offspring of antiquated prejudices, had moulded in its original stamina irresistible principles of decay and dissolution. The ignorance of the people is a bottom, but for a temporary system. The interest of active men in the state is a foundation perpetual and infallible. However, some circumstances arising, It must be confessed in a great degree from accident, prevented the effects of this influence for a long time from breaking out in a manner capable of exciting any serious apprehensions. Although government was strong and flourished exceedingly, the court had drawn far less advantage than one would imagine from this great source of power. At the revolution, the crown deprived, for the ends of the revolution itself, of many prerogatives, was found too weak to struggle against all the difficulties which pressed so new and unsettled a government. The court was obliged, therefore, to delegate a part of its powers to men of such interest as could support, and of such fidelity as would adhere to its establishment. Such men were able to draw in a greater number to a concurrence in the common defence. This connection, necessary at first, continued long after convenient, and properly conducted, might indeed, in all situations, be a useful instrument of government. At the same time, through the intervention of men of popular weight and character, the people possessed a security for their just proportion of importance in the state. But as the title to the crown grew stronger by long possession, and by the constant increase of its influence. These helps have of late seemed to certain persons no better than encumbrances. The powerful managers for government were not sufficiently submissive to the pleasure of the possessors of immediate and personal favour, sometimes from a confidence in their own strength, natural and acquired, sometimes from a fear of offending their friends and weakening that lead in the country which gave them a consideration independent of the court. Men acted as if the court could receive as well as confer an obligation. The influence of government, thus divided in appearance between the court and the leaders of parties, became in many cases an accession rather to the popular than to the royal scale. And some part of that influence, which would otherwise have been possessed, as in a sort of mortmain and unalienable domain, returned again to the great ocean from whence it arose and circulated among the people. This method, therefore, of governing by men of great natural interest or great acquired consideration was viewed in a very invidious light by the true lovers of absolute monarchy. It is the nature of despotism to abhor power held by any means but its own momentary pleasure, and to annihilate all intermediate situations between boundless strength on its own part and total debility on the part of the people, to get rid of all this intermediate and independent importance, and to secure to the court the unlimited and uncontrolled use of its own vast influence, under the sole discretion of its own private favour, has for some years past been the great object of policy. If this were compassed, the influence of the crown must of course produce all the effects which the most sanguine partisans of the court could possibly desire. Government might then be carried on without any concurrence on the part of the people, without any attention to the dignity of the greater, or to the affections of the lower sorts a new project was therefore devised by a certain set of intriguing men totally different from the system of administration which had prevailed since the accession of the house of brunswick this project i have heard was first conceived by some persons in the court of frederick prince of wales the earliest attempt in the execution of this design was to set up for minister a person in rank indeed respectable, and very ample in fortune, but who, to the moment of this vast and sudden elevation, was little known or considered in the kingdom. To him the whole nation was to yield an immediate and implicit submission, but whether it was from want of firmness to bear up against the first opposition, or that things were not yet fully ripened, or that this method was not found the most eligible. The idea was soon abandoned. The instrumental part of the project was a little altered, to accommodate it to the time, and to bring things more gradually and more surely to the one great end proposed. The first part of the reformed plan was to draw a line which should separate the court from the ministry. Hitherto these names had been looked upon as synonymous but for the future, court and administration were to be considered as things totally distinct. By this operation, two systems of administration were to be formed, one which should be in the real secret and confidence, the other merely ostensible to perform the official and executory duties of government. The latter were alone to be responsible, whilst the real advisers, who enjoyed all the power were effectually removed from all the danger secondly a party under these leaders was to be formed in favour of the court against the ministry this party was to have a large share in the emoluments of government and to hold it totally separate from and independent of ostensible administration the third point and that on which the success of the whole scheme ultimately depended was to bring Parliament to an acquiescence in this project. Parliament was therefore to be taught by degrees a total indifference to the persons, rank, influence, abilities, connections and character of the ministers of the Crown. By means of a discipline, on which I shall say more hereafter, that body was to be habituated to the most opposite interests and the most discordant politics. All connections and dependencies among subjects were to be entirely dissolved, as hitherto business had gone through the hands of leaders, of Whigs or Tories, men of talents to conciliate the people, and to engage their confidence. Now the method was to be altered, and the lead was to be given to men of no sort of consideration or credit in the country. This want of natural importance was to be their very title to delegated power. Members of Parliament were to be hardened into an insensibility to pride as well as to duty. Those high and haughty sentiments, which are the great support of independence, were to be let down gradually. Points of honour and precedence were no more to be regarded in parliamentary decorum than in a Turkish army. It was to be avowed as a constitutional maxim that the king might appoint one of his footmen, or one of your footmen, for minister, and that he ought to be, and that he would be, as well followed as the first name for rank or wisdom in the nation. Thus Parliament was to look on as if perfectly unconcerned, while a cabal of the closet and backstairs was substituted in the place of a national administration. With such a degree of acquiescence, any measure of any court might well be deemed thoroughly secure. The capital objects, and by much the most flattering characteristics of arbitrary power, would be obtained. Everything would be drawn from its holdings in the country, to the personal favour and inclination of the prince. This favour would be the sole introduction to power, and the only tenure by which it was to be held so that no person looking towards another, and all looking towards the court, it was impossible, but that the motive which solely influenced every man's hopes, must come in time to govern every man's conduct, till at last the civility became universal, in spite of the dead letter of any laws or institutions whatsoever, how it should happen that any man could be tempted to venture upon such a project of government, may, at first view, appear surprising. But the fact is that opportunities, very inviting to such an attempt, have offered, and the scheme itself was not destitute of some arguments, not wholly unplausible to recommend it. These opportunities and these arguments, the use that has been made of both, the plan for carrying out this new scheme of government into execution, and the effects which it has produced are in my opinion worthy of their serious consideration his majesty came to the throne of these kingdoms with more advantages than any of his predecessors since the revolution fourth in descent and third in succession of his royal family even the zealots of hereditary right in him saw something to flatter their favourite prejudices and to justify a transfer of their attachments without a change in their principles. The person and cause of the pretender will become contemptible. His title disowned throughout Europe. His party disbanded in England. His Majesty came, indeed, to the inheritance of a mighty war. But victorious in every part of the globe, peace was always in his power not to negotiate but to dictate. No foreign habitudes or attachments withdrew him from the cultivation of his power at home. His revenue for the civil establishment, fixed, as it was then thought, at a large but definite sum, was ample without being invidious. His influence by additions from conquest, by an augmentation of debt, by an increase of military and naval establishment, much strengthened and extended. And coming to the throne in the prime and full vigour of youth, as from affection there was a strong dislike, so from dread, there seemed to be a general averseness, from giving anything like offence to a monarch, against whose resentment opposition could not look for a refuge in any sort of reversionary hope. End of section twenty-eight.